Three years straight. That's a hell of a slump buster. And these past three years of success were doubled up, representing harvest of both deer and elk, following a dry spell of mind-bending frustration and crazy bad luck stacking up on my hunting efforts, to the level that I eventually, albeit reluctantly, proclaimed that I'd been cursed. Because for a decade in the early 2000s, my hunting efforts were plagued with failure, in the sense of tagging out at least. My left hand foiled up and down as the warm summer air slipped past, driving north of Boise. Warm golden light glanced through the blades of grass and leaves that were still prominently green. I cracked and spat sunflower seeds out the window with an offbeat rhythm. Admiring the late summer scenery stretching out along crystal clear freestone rivers and hard scrabble rural communities, I chuckled out loud taking note as a rural firefighting crew pitched arcs of water from the town's proud fire engine to water the high school football field. Automated irrigation at its finest. But the thoughts of what entails a streak versus a blip returned to my thoughts and the fragility of outcomes beyond my control kept pestering this peaceful yet highly anticipated drive, which I was simply trying to enjoy for what it was. The contemplation of continuing a streak was distracting and irritating to me. Life and the evolving aspects of parenthood, now a year and a half along, had my progress and preparation for the 2018 season nowhere close to where I'd been this time last year. And the fact that I'd become enamored with fly fishing for Snake River bass and catfish this summer, which also involved a bunch of time and money to restore and return to service a small boat that had belonged to my late father. Point being, I'd spent a lot of time in that boat fishing and drinking beer, whereas last year I'd been trail running with weights and charting significant fitness high marks. Nope, not this summer. Since the Roby Creek Half Marathon in April, I'd not made it trail running once just the thought of running at this point hurt. When I arrived at my parking and camping location, I was disappointed to find a trio of parties already parked there, and by early on opening morning, yet another out-of-state rig had arrived. Although this area is expansive and offered a lot of real estate to hunt, I could not help but grumble. Two of the past three areas that I'd chosen to hunt had mysteriously become popular in the years following my arrival and discovery of them, leading to my abandonment of beloved places that I sought to hunt without the interference from other hunters. But once the weight of my full pack hit my shoulders and the rhythm of a several mile commute hit its stride, I put all that behind me and relished the big mountain air, game trails, and forests littered with clues of elk and rutting activity. A continuation of last year's thrill, I was brimming with excitement to simply explore and chart what this particular location had to offer. I'd spent bits of the past year revisiting memories and observations from my computer screen via Google Earth and had laid all sorts of scenarios out for what I'd hoped to find now that my feet were once again treading this dirt. From ground zero at my Creekside parking point, I'd worked my way miles upstream and two and a half thousand feet into thinner air each step along the way, taking note of tracks and sign on the ground, rubs on trees, browsing patterns on the vegetation, and bedding areas where elk had laid during carefree summer rest. My bow was in my hand, but in all reality, I was only scouting, casing the joint for where I'd plant upcoming hunts later in the season, in places that I'd consider centrally located and ideal for a spike camp. It was great fun in purely the tactical sense, 
to imagine what opportunities could come from this sprawling network of terrain. The complex of feeder creeks and drainages separated by steep ridges that arched northward in parallel like a jumble of peeled and separated orange segments. South and west facing slopes were mostly open sage, rock, and grass, while portions that faced north and to the east were draped in timber. Water ran down the bottoms of most of all the parts between. At one point while traversing a steep side slope, which was shaded by a thick canopy of old growth timber, I noticed a large area of dead willows. It seemed odd to me for so many willows of the same size, distribution, and age to all lay dead, bunch after bunch of silver-white matchsticks now scattered on the forest floor. Why had they all died, I wondered, and seemingly all at the same time? As I looked closer, I could see signs that braided channels of water had once flowed across the area and downward towards the primary creek bottom, but all that water was now long gone. As I continued uphill, the sound of new and steeply rushing water came to overcome the softer babbling creek below me to my left. A defined row of leafy green and waist-high willows streaked uphill like a fence line. This entire slope I was traversing was made up of very loose rocks and soil with little ground cover other than the fallen dead pine needles and remnant clusters of willow. I noticed that the entire area was a fan of avalanche deposit, steep side slope with a crown cross-section at the center, and here, near the bottom of all of this loose material, a vibrant spring gushed. Yet the entire flow was cut into a single trench, all the current channelized and racing in a direct line for the bottom. It was wild to think that for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, water had been distributed in such a way that countless willows had thrived. Then one day, not too long ago, with a fateful bit of erosion, gravity, and quite likely snowpack, if not an actual avalanche, a keystone rock was nudged from its holding place setting off a chain reaction that would result in the entire flow of the creek diverting from one side of this material fan and subsequently into this single channel, essentially choking off willows that for generations had thrived. Like the work of beavers that I'd taken note of and mentioned in last year's rut report and reading, this was once again a subtle yet telling example of nature taking its own course. Another element of the scouting process for this trip was the deployment of my trail camera. Trail cams seem to be something of a trend these days, and I can certainly understand why. I only have one, so I took careful consideration of where I would place it for this chunk of time between opening day and my next scheduled hunt a week or so later. On day two of the season, there was no mistaking where I should place my camera, as I watched a mixed group of five or so bulls bump up and out of a Cirque Canyon. Several of the bulls were muddied, one in particular had mud still glistening in the August sun, coating his rump and more dangling from his antlers. A wallow. I could not see it at the time, but observing this evidence on actual elk in front of me was all the clue I needed to make certain that I needed to find that wallow. And in short order, I did, nestled perfectly at the base of a large rock field with cliffs and boulders at its rim, which capped and created this dead-end canyon. Three or so hundred feet down from the crest were a pair of wallows, both showing the signs of recent use by the still dark and muddy water, along with delicate splatters of mud still clinging to grass and vegetation around them. This was clearly a locker room, where groups of bulls would congregate and release all varieties of rutting frustrations. With amateur haste, 
I hurriedly strapped the camera to a downfall facing the wallow, hoping that I had all the settings, batteries, and memory properly set. My imagination could guess and easily run wild picturing what would unfold in front of this camera over the coming week or so. I closed the clasping latches, turned downhill, and raced the late summer shadows down the canyon back to camp. Pulling into my camp and parking area now on my second trip, I was both thrilled and relieved to find no other rigs or sign of people. I mean, after all, it's totally understandable that other hunters would stumble into this place and I'd overlap with their time in these mountains. Especially given that with our home balance now, Allie only able to watch our kiddo on weekends, I was now working with weekend time slots myself. And much of the beautiful elk habitat that I'd honed in on is visible from the road, making it an easy target for casual passersby to stop and take in the epic scenery and mosaic of timber transitions and tree lines, like a bikini car wash outside a frat house just begging to be gawked at and admired. But last season had established a baseline for what I'd come to expect as normal hunting pressure for the spot, and lack thereof was a major component of what I'd come to appreciate about this area, despite these vulnerabilities that I'd figured had been proven now as trustworthy. Patterns are something that I always watch for when spending time in the same place over and over. And one observation that I'd made early on last season was a lack of mule deer. Now this came as no surprise given the ass kicking that mule deer herd suffered in the winter of 2016. The region, and this drainage in particular, had all the hallmarks of what I recognize as stellar big buck country. And over the course of last year, I even stumbled upon a handful of old chalky dropped antlers, confirming that bucks did indeed spend time in this area, if only during the spring. But I imagine that they were here also in the fall. The lack of deer was indeed striking. In all of last season, I'm not sure I saw a single deer. Maybe a doe or two, but nothing really comes to mind. So when I came upon a large set of deer tracks last season, they not only caught my eye, but also my attention and imagination. They were big tracks. A dandy buck. This fellow's one of the very few that must have survived the gnarly winter, I noted in my head. The tracks ran uphill diagonally along a steep game trail, wrapping around the bow of a razorback ridgeline. Bitterbrush, sage, and mountain mahogany stood tall and crisp while mixed with large boulders and rock formations jutting from the ground espresso soil. At the time, I was on the heels and catching up to the bull I eventually arrowed, but the quick glances at the set of tracks stuck firmly in my memory. Now three or four times passing the same area this season, each time I eased over the rise which revealed line of sight to this junction of canyons. I'd watch closely before making my way and presence known. And each time, I'd see the tracks again, fresh from the night before. One of these days, I'll lay eyes on this buck, I said to myself. I'm sure of it. Now, all week long, I'd been anticipating what may unfold in front of the trail camera that I'd placed on the wall of the week prior. And making my way up canyon that morning, I pondered, what or who would visit the wallow? Would I have footage of other hunters? If so, would they spot my camera or possibly tamper with it or even take it? Is there a chance I could get footage of any big mature bulls? I really wondered if or how big of bulls roamed this area. And most of all, I wanted to get another look at the big non-typical bull that I had had such a close encounter with last year. I never got a super clear look at him during that razor close encounter we shared last September. 
but I saw enough to instantly recognize his one-sided, multi-beam tangle of unique antler. It really took a sizable amount of discipline that morning to stick with the hunt that I'd planned and not beeline directly for the trail cam. But by the middle of the afternoon, I'd finally made my way into the drainage with the rock-capped dead end and approached the wallow where I'd left my camera. First thing I noticed was that the camera was definitely moved, knocked loose from the wedged orientation that I'd left it in facing the wallow. So that confirmed that something had tampered with it. I also noticed that the wallow, which had been a symmetrical tub, was disrupted, excavated in a way that all the water had drained out, and it was now much less obvious as a wallow. So there had been activity of some kind here since I'd left, and I was pumped at the thought of having it all captured on film. I removed my heavy pack and took a seat in the black shade of a massive spruce tree. I pulled a bag of cooked bacon from my food compartment and sucked down some water. Pulling my digital camera from its pouch, I located the extra memory card that I'd planned to swap with the one in the trail cam. From over my shoulder, I heard something moving through the grass. Slowly, I turned my head to the left and saw a young black bear casually loping his way towards me. Quickly, I replaced the memory card in my camera, turned it to the video mode, and pointed it at the bear. He was working right towards me at 20, 15, 10 yards before I finally decided I didn't need him getting wind of my bacon. I rose up and poked a proper fart sound right at him to get his attention. He whirled and blasted for cover with striking speed. Cool, I thought to myself. I'm sure I'll have some shots of him here on the trail camera, and now I'll have this supplemental footage too. Brimming with anticipation, I opened the clasps, removed the memory card, and placed it in the camera. I took a deep breath, closed my eyes, and hoped for a screen filled with tiny images as I pushed the review button. I opened my eyes to find exactly what I'd feared. Lousy text reading, no images displayed on the screen. Terribly disappointed, although not at all surprised, I repacked my equipment and assessed where I would wander the remaining hours of daylight. Had it been turned on properly? Did the video settings screw things up and not work? Or was the memory card too slow for the video? Maybe somebody found it and erased all of the images. All kinds of scenarios ran through my head, and I tried hard to block the entire effort from my thoughts and just stay focused on new and future opportunities for success. Well, pretty cool to have that footage of the bear. I almost wasn't there in time to even have that. What luck, I recited while giving my shaky morale a pat on the back. When it comes to elk sign, nothing is as fun and rewarding for me to find as rubs. Elk rubs are such visceral statements. They are a physical and visual mark of aggression that brings to mind all kinds of wild thoughts and imagination of what the bull looked like. Some rubs are a bit pathetic in results, yet some are flat out striking and make my jaw drop in amazement. I just love finding rubs. The kind I really look for are the ones that are ripped from trees the size of telephone poles. Yeah, that is impressive to see. I've only found a few like that in all my years in the woods, and man, they are cool. It must take a hell of a bowl and attitude to push into a tree of that size and stability and say, let her buck. Of course, the other great measure of rubs are how high they reach. Now, I'll screen the cheese dicks out of this early and clarify that a 15-foot tree that can be bent over to 4 feet off the ground does not constitute a magnum rub. However, when the tree is thick enough to be stout to where the high marks are relevant, that's when it's really cool to see. 
Same goes for the ground too. I mean, meaning if that rub is especially a high marking while also marked all the way down near the ground, then I equate that to really long brow tines. During my hunt in the opening days of the season, I finally found a rub with something I've been keeping my eyes open for for decades in the woods, fresh rubbed velvet. So many times I've examined fresh August rubs looking carefully for bits of fine bloody velvet. But oddly enough, I'd never found any until this season. Per usual, I was watching any fresh rubs I'd come upon this early season for signs of fuzzy brown velvet. And it was a horizontal branch rub that finally produced the goods. And to be honest, this whole deal with bulls rubbing horizontal tree branches rather than juvenile tree trunks is a bit shady to me. I mean, I've spent a lot of years in the woods studying critters, and I swear that 15 years ago, I just don't remember ever seeing elk rubs on branches as opposed to trunks. Maybe they've been around me all the time and I've never noticed, but I really find that hard to believe. Is it just me? Because now, let's say over the past six or seven years, I've come to notice these kinds of rubs all over and much, much more often. I wonder if anybody else out there has noticed the same. I mean, what's the big secret with these tree branch rubs that I've been totally missing? Is the elk behavior actually changing? Or is there something that has been there all along and I have somehow not noticed? I really don't know and find it perplexing. There are always specific features of rubs too that indicate special weapons were used. When a rub is especially splintered, I imagine that like a deer, the bull has devil tines that protrude from the bases of his brow tines. I've always wanted a bull with devil tines. A few years back, I was in an area where there was this strange characteristic, almost trademark rub. This bull most often gouged the bark of jack pine, typically 10 to 20 inches in diameter. Its rub section was marked almost as a diamond, with well-defined slices at the top and bottom creating crisp, pointed poles of the rub. It was so clean, I still question if it could have actually been a bull making these rubs. However, these rubs were very fresh and had fresh elk tracks clearly present at the base of each of these trees. However, another odd feature was that a massive area of the tree bark was totally stripped, yet there was little, if any bark laying at the base of these trees, almost as if the critter had taken the bark with it. A non-typical bull whose rack was tangled and kept the majority of the stripped bark? A Sasquatch? Porcupine? I've considered all these possibilities and still think it was a freak non-typical bull. One of my friends still hunts this area and I hope that someday he'll find out. With sore and blistered feet, I staggered to my truck late that night quite honestly contemplating how much fun it really was to embark on such long day hunts. The elk in the best areas to hunt were a good four miles in. Add to that an average of five miles roaming the actual juicy spots, and then the commute back to camp was just making days far more demanding than I was in shape for this season. I mean, I was surviving, but as I mentioned, I just wasn't in shape for 15-mile days with a heavy pack up and down gobs of elevation. I grumbled that I needed to get better organized and commit to a longer chunk of time in the woods and stay up there in a spike camp. Camping at the truck is great. I really love it. But this amount of walking in and out every day was just bullshit. While enjoying a fine dinner of cold cereal and fried chicken that night, I decided I should double check that memory card from the trail camera. 
It was on video mode, and the cam may have recorded in a funky file format that my digital camera simply didn't recognize. So, just before dozing off to sleep, I plugged it into my laptop and snapped to attention when hundreds of individual files loaded onto the screen. In fact, the camera had functioned perfectly all along, and I indeed had over 300 clips of various wildlife from the wallow. With bright and beaming eyes, I scrolled through each file, discovering elk of all sorts and sizes, deer, birds like crazy, and wouldn't you know it, not a single hunter or bear. For the third week in September, we as a family had banked all of our resources for me to have five full days to hunt. This was it. I really needed to make something happen during this outing, as getting me back up here again was not going to be easy for any of us. So as I'd complained earlier, I was over the long miles commute into the prime hunting areas and had indeed prepared this trip to pack up a camp up and into the juice and stay. It was the only realistic and responsible way that I could imagine being able to pack an elk out of this country this year. And frankly, I was giddy at the thought of posting up a camp deep in the guts of such a wild and rugged place. A friend from out of state had been hunting elk in some adjacent areas, and we'd talked on the phone and decided that if he'd like to join me for a few days, we could pack up and spike together. The plan came together, and I directed Brad when and where to meet. I left Boise at 2.30 a.m. and greatly enjoyed the streamlined drive with barely another set of headlights the entire way. When I rounded the corner to where I'd park, however, I was punched in the gut to find six other vehicles. And this was before sunrise on a Sunday morning. Meaning that all these parties were not only hunting the spot, but they were also packed up in there as I'd planned to do. I was dismayed, and for a while my temper boiled with trying to understand why it's been that time after time I research and discover areas to hunt and have a few years of unbothered experiences, and then it's like somebody puts ads on social media or something saying, come and hunt yada yada Idaho, hashtag big bulls, hashtag no hunters, and a geotag of where to find me. Now, I do not have proper spike camping equipment meaning that my sleeping bag weighs I don't know how many pounds, but a lot, and it's the size of a beach ball. My tent could serve as a peg leg for an NBA player, and thanks to my love, I just recently acquired a camp stove and water filter. My backpack, an early generation Eberly stock, was given to me by Glenn Eberly himself 15 or so years ago. A massive, extremely durable and capable pack, it's tremendously bulky and heavy by today's standards. So with my five-day camp strapped together, I looked, well, I don't really know what to describe what I looked like. Maybe like an ant carrying a moose turd. It was not a pretty sight. As Brad and I worked our way up canyon, I outlined the general areas of the drainage that we would split up. I had described that I preferred to hunt alone, and the country was large enough for us to depart from our spike camp and have plenty to hunt daily without overlapping zip codes. As we reached a midway bench of open sage, I spotted two colored shapes on the fringe of the timber a few hundred yards away. I stopped to rest and quickly made out two hunters hunkered down and glassing us. I pointed them out to Brad and suggested we'd better go over and talk to them. I always prefer to communicate and at least get some understanding of what others are up to, rather than leave everything as a guess. 
half the distance to the tree line, the hunters had dropped off the edge and clearly decided to keep their plans private. I doubt they even realized that I'd seen them. Running into other hunters was going to be a new component of this trip and something that I worked so hard to avoid in all my hunt planning. Now, all this complaining aside, here's the thing that was incredibly cool about it. From what I could tell, all the other hunters in this area were legit. They get it. They came from far and wide across the country from what I saw on their license plates. In one way or another, they found a place on earth to hunt elk that met whatever their various criteria that they had in their minds for planning their elk hunt in Idaho. They too had huge dreams to find a place that still felt wild, submerse themselves in it, and commit to the opportunity to shoot an elk many, many miles from the truck. I dig people like that. Here's what's even better. In five days hunting this drainage, with let's say a minimum of seven hunters here on my final trip, I didn't hear a single hunter bugle. I didn't hear a single hunter cow call. For whatever reason, well, yeah, all of the added human elements, duh. But yeah, the elk had shut up and were not talking. And from what I observed, all these hunters were savvy to that fact and not jacking off power bugles from every crest. What this delivered was a hunting experience that was shared by myself and a handful of additional hunting friends and companions. It's fantastically cool. Like fishing a river where respectful etiquette still exists and everyone gives everyone else their space to enjoy their day and not be disturbed by the greed or carelessness of others. Now in this case, I'm not sure how much actual etiquette came into play as much as just the basic fact that these hunters just knew what they were doing. That is, when the elk aren't talking, then it might make sense to stop and really think about what you do with all those calls you carry around. Sometimes, well, actually for me, I guess all the time, it just makes sense to sit and chill and see what happens, see what the critters set up on their own. If they're partying, then you bet, show up with bells on and throw the clown oil cap out. But when something has the elk on the lowdown, I like to follow suit and I lay low, quiet like a cat, and careful to remain unnoticed. These other hunters did the same thing. I cut their tracks in several places, glassed a few of them every now and then, and at one point even had a couple walk by me in thick timber. They were quiet and careful, and not a peep out of them. Too bad I'd just knocked an arrow and dang near had a shot at a really nice bull just before they arrived. I'd been hearing some knocking noises that stopped me on a micro bench in thick old-growth white pine and fir. It was really windy that day, so I was trying to determine if it was actually just tree trunks clunking together, which happens often in the woods when it's windy. After standing still for a minute or two just listening, a bugle piped in on the gusty afternoon wind, first of the day. I guessed it at around 200 yards straight below me. I had a diaphragm in my mouth, as I knew I was basically prowling through elk hotel rooms and was on high alert, expecting an encounter with every step. So when the medium but respectable sounding broadcast hit my ears, I opted to fire a reply instantly. Although a very humble and cautious response, I was careful to sound inferior to him, yet a little bit irritating by such a prompt reply. I also pushed the call at an angle behind me and upstream in the gusty wind to add a token of misdirection to my offering. Moments after the sounds of my long note bull talk had left my tube, I spotted elk legs moving through the timber like 70 yards in front of me. 
The wind had totally fooled me too, and I was already right on top of this bull. Realizing this, I instantly regretted replying at all, for if I'd just taken a moment before bugling back, I would have found that I was already within range of this bull. I could have simply slipped forward as needed to find a shooting lane, and this deal would have been in the books. But as it was, the bull still took a few more swipes at the tree he was rubbing, which was indeed making the knocking sounds that had stopped me in the first place. And now knowing my presence, he started walking ahead and above me. It was thick enough that I couldn't see far at all, and the bull was out of sight almost immediately. From my location, I didn't know if he was circling and coming in, or if he was headed away. One thing I was certain, though, I'd relinquished the element of surprise with an opportunity that could have been far better played if I'd remained silent. Fifteen or so minutes later, I heard the bull crash away as I tried to backtrack behind a dense clump of trees. The late afternoon sun was super low and bright in my face, and I know that I glowed like a lantern to anything watching with this kind of sun at its back. Point being that the bull had only gone another 30 yards and stopped to wait and see what would happen. And my decision to advance further, although carefully considered and executed, turned out to be a mistake. Mark the score, Elk, 794, me, 7. It was an absolute pleasure to wake and emerge from my tent already miles and thousands of feet above where I'd previously camped at the truck. In the gray light of morning, I sparked my micro burner stove to make instant coffee and oatmeal. Although chilled in the cold morning air, I removed my puffy vest and packed it in my Eberly stock, along with provisions for the day. Not long out of camp, as I gained enough altitude to view much of the surrounding habitat, I spotted exactly what I'd hoped to see, a large and mature bull perched above a harem of cows. In the calm of early morning, wind would be at its most cooperative and predictable, so I set a course to close the gap, a mile or a little more to get into his zone. Short of a 20 or so minute delay to allow the stare of a vigilant cow to dismiss, the stock went very well. I had closed the gap and now found myself standing among the fresh tracks of the bull that I'd watched in my binoculars and camera. Now on the cap of the large and rounded butte, I crept with tippy toes, scanning for sign of hair or horn. Peering through the bright morning sun, I spotted antler tips tilting in the mix of silver dead and patchy green pines. He was in range, but it was just way too thick for a shot. The bull was big, likely one of the larger bulls I'd seen so far this season. His main beams were wide and long, a six point on the left and actually just a five on the right, a quality that I personally admire actually. The bull moved from my left to right, slightly angling away and then into the trees too thick for me to tell if he'd stopped or where he'd gone. This scenario was perfect. Just like last year, I was dogging a herd with the bull right where I wanted him, in the back and all alone. Problem was, however, that this herd was not really moving. Throughout the morning, it was basically milling about on the top of this knob. So it wasn't like the linear process of actually following elk that were strung out and moving away. It was more like trying to get within close range and clear line of sight of a swirling hive of elk. I knew I was right in their hip pocket, and as I peered around trees, snags, and obstructions, I expected to see hare or antler at any moment. I needed to spot the bull again so I could monitor where his attention was focused and guide my approach. 
nearing the top of this rounded knob, I couldn't see very far for the curvature of the ground line, not to mention the scattered trees. Was the bull just over and out of my line of sight, likely in the open and providing shot opportunities if I were just 30 yards ahead? Opportunities to shoot elk do not wait around, and I am a staunch believer in being aggressive and making things happen, as opposed to some who seem more apt to sit tight and see what they're dealt by the hand of luck. Luck of the good variety, and I have never had a great relationship. I don't wait around for luck anymore. I pressed onward, confident in my track record of spotting elk before they spot me. Just a minute ago, the bull was standing right here, I gasped internally. He didn't spook, I was sure of that. He had simply trekked ahead, undoubtedly keeping cozy with his cows. The trees were just thick enough that everything within my field of view was also within bow range. I had advanced well past where I'd last seen the bull, and knew that at any moment somebody was going to spot somebody. It was just a matter of who came first. As I topped out over the crest, I was once again in a head-on disadvantage with the sun. Low and bright, its morning lays were beaming parallel to the ground and making my ability to scan ahead very difficult. I raised my left arm to block the sun and stepped carefully and deliberately. Then they ran. The elk had seen my legs. Not surprising, as sometimes tree trunks and branches create the equation where line of sight is blocked at eye level, yet open and clear from around the knees, which is I'm sure what they saw. They only saw foreign movement, and they didn't get my wind. A soft spook. From gaps in the trees, I could watch them over the next several hundred yards, and I opted to let them go and not push anymore. Better to keep them in the area for another opportunity than push onward from a disadvantage to begin with. I want to bring something to mention here that many of these experiences that I'm recounting I also captured on video. So if you're listening to this and would also like to see what many of these things look like, jump over to vimeo.com slash fishbite and check out the most recent film called Love Every Minute. However, be warned, spoiler alert, that this video does reveal the outcome of my season. Okay, so the remainder of that day was filled with continued exploration into the farthest reaches of what this huge drainage contained. I'd pressed to the uppermost panels of timber and zigzagged my way back down, discovering endless areas filthy with elk sign. Very productive in the scouting sense, but bared no fruit in the sense of the actual encounters. I wandered to the edge of the canyon that contained the wallow, below the shale rock cliffs and slides, and I decided to drop all the way down to see what may be happening at that wallow. It was already 7.30, and the evening light was filled with the peachy colors of Alpenglow. I dropped a quarter of the way down the steep slope when I decided to stop and get a final bite to eat so that I'd be fueled for whatever I encountered at the wallow and then the trek back up and out and down to camp. As I swung my pack over my shoulder and adjusted the straps, a twinkle of light and movement in the distance caught my eye. There, in one of the most prominent saddles in the entire drainage, a herd of elk was milling out of the timber and into the open sage. I do have shots of this in the video, by the way. It was the absolute perfect scenario for me to sneak into bow range. Just under a mile away and a substantial amount of climbing to get there, much of which I'd just descended, 
I couldn't help but snarked as I looked at my watch and calculated if I had time and the physical ability to put myself on that saddle and capitalize on this opportunity. Because the night prior, I'd chosen that very saddle to spend the final hour of light. I'd been tactfully set up in the very grove of Christmas trees that this elk herd was now mingling among. But one way or another, there they were now, and I chose to give everything I had to make it to the elk before shooting light was lost. I imagine this very scenario often when I'm trail running in preparation for hunting season. It's like the closing miles of the race, putting everything I have mentally and physically out on the table and knowing that the result will live forever in hindsight. My entire body pumped like pistons in an engine. The first half mile was the toughest. Lots of elevation needed to be claimed and I opted to get as much of it taken care of early so that the remaining distance I could try to recover, rest, and slow my breathing to a level where I could focus and shoot. Racing strategy while hunting. Pretty cool, I thought. I also anticipated that once I got to the perimeter of the elk herd, I'd get hung up and stopped with the process of remaining undetected. And just as I imagined, I watched in admiration, but also frustration, as the herd bull hooked and ran cows in a repeating pattern just in front of me, but one small bull had caught a glimpse of my movement closing the gap, and he had me pinned. I could tell he was not overly concerned with what he'd seen, and in short order he did indeed dismiss my camouflage blob on the trees. Now I'll tell you what, I mentioned how many of the things I was able to capture on video from this hunt. Well, the scene that unfolded in front of me here is one that I really wish I could have captured. In fact, at several points as I closed in on this group of elk, I contemplated pulling out the camera, but shot opportunities were just inevitable, so I kept my bow in hand and camera stowed. As the September sun slid behind the rugged mountain peaks, a soft and colorful sunset painted the sky. Perfectly framed in front of me, the backlit herd of elk milled about. Juvenile raghorns browsed on the perimeter, while the herd bull pushed, hooked, and ran his cows back and forth, much of the time right on the skyline. It was a calendar-like setting if I've ever seen one. And as much as I enjoyed admiring this, I was eagerly rooting for the elk to make their way over the saddle and out of sight, as this would provide me the chance to scurry up to the edge and pop over, almost certainly within range of the elk. Soon enough, this did happen, but the light was fading fast. We were right on the edge of what I could imagine being enough light to see through the peephole in my bowstring. I pushed as quickly and quietly as possible the hundred or so yards to crest the skyline where the herd had just dropped behind. As I did, my legs burned, my lungs heaved. I tried desperately to slow, calm, and control my breathing. Not 30 yards ahead of me now, two young bulls were sparring, heads down and antlers locked. They pushed and shoved against each other, the ultimate opportunity for a predator to strike. My entire life I'd heard of hunters in this situation, and I often imagined what it would be like myself. Well, looking back now, I can actually barely even remember, because I remained so focused on my approach and keeping close watch on all the other elk in the area, monitoring for a head to come up and lock in my direction, and that is exactly what happened. Just as I was sidestepping to align an unobstructed view of the pair of broadside bulls and impress a fateful outcome on the sparring match, a cow, 30 yards to the side, busted me. She bolted downhill towards the two bulls and the rest of the herd, taking a pair of spikes with her. 
The bulls unhooked and looked up in confusion as the cow and spikes ran past them. I came to full draw and placed my pins on the larger of the two. Confirming that I could actually see and clearly define my target and pins, I focused on the bull I'd chosen, but he and the other began trotting downhill in a way. I promptly delivered a series of my fail-safe goat bleats in rapid succession, and the smaller bull came to a stop. I had my pins right on his shoulder, but he was quartering away at an angle I deemed too steep. For ten or so seconds, we locked on each other. The shot was within reason, but it just didn't feel right. I mean, the bull was small, but any elk is a great victory for a backcountry hunter. All the components were there. We were even in a part of the region that would offer about as easy of a pack out as could be expected. The vibe just wasn't there, you know? Kind of like scanning the radio dial and coming upon Christian rock. You finally hit a clean, crisp signal. There's decent sounding instruments. You don't recognize the tune. Maybe you just can't quite make out the lyrics or the voice but you're kind of going along with it for a few seconds, and then there's just something not quite right here. Then you make out something in the chorus that sounds like being on your knees for your father, and you're like, nope, I'm out of here. And this little bull and I seemed to reach the same conclusion about each other, and everything just dissipated. In a way, I think we were both relieved. I bounded my way back to camp that night with a sense of accomplishment and relative satisfaction for the day's outcome and an Eddie Vedder melody repeating in my head. After an hour or so of glassing distant ridges and with the luck of a few rogue bugles, I'd identified a small herd with a nice bull holding court among them. I'd taken a huge loop in efforts of having a shot at this bull, and the wind gave me the firm middle finger. Even beyond the middle finger, we refer to as the full hand of fingers we call the eagle. But as the sounds of hoofbeats faded, I knew I needed to be listening for bugles too. Because under almost all but the worst herd-busting scenarios this time of year, as a herd bull follows his harem of cows to relocate after being spooked, the bull will bugle. It's like he can't stop himself. I'm not sure if it's the simple stirring from what was a normal setting, the common behavior of broadcasting his presence as normal elk protocol when entering a new zone, or simply getting cranked up following the backsides of all his cows. He just can't keep his mouth shut. And when a herd like this is relocating, it can also be helpful in the sense of just stirring the pot. If elk enter an area that's already occupied by other elk, there will be some level of dialogue between the groups, which can be a godsend in the middle of the day when everything else is otherwise quiet and tight-lipped. And sure enough, a short time later, I caught the bull talking. The dog-like bull talk was a muted compromise, with a grainy thrust at the end just making the statement that this was indeed a herd bull with cows entering the new neighborhood, and not merely a satellite bull searching for unoccupied refuge. From the sound, I could pinpoint exactly where he was, a finger of white pine forest thinned by the expansive die-off that's taken place over the past 30 years. The finger was well-defined, with nearly impassable borders except for the base where another finger paralleled out with similar proportions and characteristics. A few minutes later, I heard him again, this time on the gently crowned top and pointing in the direction he might actually wrap around. But right where he was at the moment would be what I'd guess was the herd's most likely place to stop in bed. It all depended on how hard they spooked. I could only imagine and hope that not that bad. 
from where they just departed was actually a way short of where I'd glassed them, indicating they may have already been up and on their feet even before I arrived. So with that, they may have actually seen or smelled me. If they only saw me, they could be close to calming down and resettling where they were now. If they caught wind of me as a totally foreign threat, they could push another mile, easy. But at least I had this last waypoint to work with. It was a place that I knew I could begin to expect finding the elk. I put my head down to follow the herd and get back in the game. The best thing about following elk is that they so often teach you the ropes of commuting. You see, they know all the trails. And in country that is this steep, rugged, and rough, knowing the trails is a priceless currency. So as I trucked along behind the tracks, I took great curiosity and interest in just how a group of elk in a hurry get from point A to B in this country. And the patchwork of trails we were now sharing was eye-opening for how I could maneuver in this country in the future, if I should choose to return. The wind was so goddamn shifty. As I contemplated how I could plan my next move, the wind would blow completely opposite of the rising thermals. So the thermals would rise, and then the wind would gust and push everything right back downhill, and for long enough that scent could absolutely travel one or two hundred yards downhill. I mean, in general, working with afternoon thermals is a no-brainer, right? The elk are on X, it's noon, you orchestrate your commute and approach to keep everything above them, right? But these gusts were so strong, steady, and relentless. Sure, I consider if a warm and rising thermal sent on a steep slope would at least maintain elevation and insist on rising, even if blowing in the downhill direction. Thus, in this scenario, ending up up and over the head of any critter downhill, but also downwind. But I don't know that for certain. It's only something that I ponder. It is, however, way better, I'm sure, than trying to apply this logic to cold, falling thermals. Regardless, once I'd closed the gap and was within half a mile or so of where I'd last heard the bull, I had to call the ball on what I was going to do. It was frustrating as hell. The wind was not just breezy, it was sincerely gusty and pushing hard down the fingers of this canyon. With each break in the wind, thermals pushed air in reverse right back up the hill. I analyzed this to death. I cursed the wind in every sense imaginable. I bumped a raghorn bull out of his bed at like 15 yards and was a quarter of a second away from lacing him at 34 yards. I was losing my mind. The most crucial element of bow hunting was having its way in a drunken tantrum. There was nothing I could do. I comprised this analogy in my head of dry fly fishing, that you're fishing a river with ultra-technical pocket water currents and seams, and just when you drop the perfectly stacked reach cast to drift flawlessly into a trophy fish's feeding lane, all of a sudden, the river spins like a top and changes direction which is a big deal because if the fish sees your fly drag in the slightest bit, it will spook and race full speed two miles downriver, if you knew which direction was downriver because it's still spinning and changing direction. This bull in particular had been biting fairly good on my fighting cow, a classic piece of hunting paraphernalia introduced by Wayne Carlton, I'd guess back in the early 90s. I'd purchased this call at Scentwise Drugs in Redmond, Oregon, back when they first came out. It was one of my prized possessions easily meeting my long-as-it-lasts criteria, which is a broad collection of items I've chosen to hold on to rather than replace or upgrade simply as a pushback to consumerism or being duped into buying more shit for the simple sake of it being new. 
So as I moved from point to point in approach of where I'd last heard the bull, I chose the same call to make careful casts. Quietly as possible, which is hard because if you're familiar with the fighting cow call, it's one of, if not the absolute loudest calls in the land, period. But I'd make a few wobbly meows with this call and listen. I'd listen hard, like eyes closed listening. One of my absolute pet peeves is when with another person and someone calls, then during the crucial period when intense listening is important, they shuffle their feet or dig into a pocket and pollute the air with rustling sounds. Anything. You call, you listen. What you hear will be unquestionably important to success. And what you do compromising that listening is an absolute crusher to those odds. At any rate, I just sent a few cow calls, and during this listening, I thought I heard something. It was not the sound I was listening for. It was incredibly faint yet unmistakable. Two consecutive sounds that I questioned as the sound of my chest mount binocular housing rubbing against the top of my gut. Yeah, this gut thing is a real bitch of getting old, but it keeps my sleeper status staunchly cloaked. It was like the sound as if I just pushed my gut in then out. It was basically like the sound of clothing rubbing softly. I stood like a statue for a minute or two following and could not hear the sound again. Yet, I couldn't replicate it either. After a few more minutes, I chalked one up to general weirdness and moved on. Working my way up a well-worn side hill game trail, I froze in my tracks. There it was again, that sound. I heard it this time clear enough to say with absolute certainty that it was indeed genuine, and this time, from my side hill location, I could clearly place where it was coming from. It was straight across the canyon, maybe a hundred or so yards over on the next finger. As I strained to hear it again, a few additional muffled sounds rose from the repeating pattern of round clumps of dead trees mixed with living trees. I could clearly see the general area and knew that something in this zone was making those sounds, breathing sounds, maybe huffing, maybe puffing, maybe a bull elk checking the scent of his cows, maybe a bear. That was my definite conclusion. I was hearing either a bear or a bull, but to be honest, I was completely perplexed. Because where I was standing, the slope was steep and northeast facing. The air was cool and 99% shade in the dense timber panel. Elk trails, beds, and fresh sign were everywhere. Where I was looking, straight across, was torching in the sun. Equally as steep and quite rocky, it was northwest facing and taking a square and direct hit from the two o'clock sun. Only a mix of white pine, dead and alive, provided a broken patchwork of blotchy shade. It had to be 15 degrees hotter over there compared to where I was standing in the loamy north-facing shaded timber. It just didn't make sense that elk would be there. There was no question, however, that I'd heard and pinpointed this sound. Watching and glassing hard for close to 20 minutes, I could spot nothing. It made a lot more sense to be a bear working something that had died there than a herd of elk choosing this as their bedding location. Regardless, this was within a quarter mile of where I'd last heard the bull, so I plotted a route that would wrap me around through the crotch of these two fingers within slight parallel uphill and just above the zone where the sounds were coming from. As I closed into a hundred or so yards of the X, I stopped in some sparse shade and knocked an arrow. I had a weird feeling in my gut 
that despite the bright sun, crackling dryness, and lofting heat, something sort of creepy was at hand. It almost felt reckless, like playing with a rattlesnake or intentionally spooking a bear at close range. This was not an elky scenario. Trying to sneak into an elk herd is super hard. Trying to sneak up on anything wild is super hard. But this year was especially tough, being as dry as I can remember in my 28 elk seasons. I mean, the basic ground of pine needles crackled so loud. A twig of any size snapped like a broom handle over your knee. Anything but hard rock or pure dirt was a non-starter for approaching any self-respecting wild animal inside of 100 yards. This steep slope I was traversing, however, offered both rocks large enough to step quietly on and bare dirt exposed from the slipping progress of gravity and erosion. At, say, 60% stealth effort, I reached a point I felt confident was directly above the sounds I'd been hearing. As I moved now in more of a sliding motion, my line of sight broke the plane of a large snag, and below me, I spotted fur. It was dark brown and serpentine in shape, forming an S with an ear at the top. I felt a great sense of relief, actually, to resolve that it was not a bear, but indeed an elk. Bedded and facing away from me, I seemed to have managed to sneak, putting me on location of a cow elk bedded below me. And I knew that this had to be the herd that I'd been pursuing that afternoon. By total chance, I'd already arrived inside bow range. The cow was below me at a very steep angle. The first thing I needed to do was get an accurate range, given that I enjoyed this luxurious opportunity of being totally undetected. I was in the process of gripping my rangefinder with my left hand, while in my right hand I held my bow with the mid-shaft of my number one arrow carefully perched between my first and second fingers like a cigarette. As I was lifting the rangefinder from its holster on my binocular strap, the cow's gaze shifted quickly, and from the back of her head, I could tell she was perking up to something approaching her. A shape was indeed breaking its way through the mix of dead branches, washed out bright light and contrasting black shadows. I could make out enough to tell that it was the bull, maybe 20 yards out and moving right for her. The cow, by the way, was bedded in the center of a perfect shooting window, as wide as an elk but free of any rogue branches. She shifted her weight forward and rose from her bed, rump first. The bull was approaching her head on, and she stepped 180 degrees in her tracks to move away from the sniffing and snorting nose of the bull. My eyes must have been huge as I let go of the rangefinder and gripped my release while sliding it up my bowstring and clipping it around in the process. This bull was headed right for the only shooting window around. I came to full draw just in time as the cow stepped out of the lane and the bull stepped in. It was an absolute perfect shot. He pushed loud gusts of air in and out as he checked the cow who was now just out of sight. I settled my eye behind my string to see through my peep, but as I did, the bill of my hat prevented my standard anchoring position. I'd pulled my hat down especially low and tight to my head as this entire stock I'd once again been peering directly into the blazing sun. I had to take a second entry, this time nudging my hat against the string to push it to the one o'clock position on my head. Now I had my line of sight to the bull. I remember settling my pins just behind his shoulder, madly calculating what I guessed his range to be and the necessary compensation for the steep downhill angle. 
It was likely less than a second of contemplation before the sense of urgency took hold, and I assessed that with this shot, all my appropriate pins were covering his vital zone. Basically, my 20, 30, 40, and 50-yard pins were all in the sweet spot. Just send it now, I thought. As my finger fell to trigger the release of my arrow, the bull stepped forward, going in deeper, maybe all the way with the cow. I hesitated. The shot I'd lined up and committed to was perfect, but in slow motion, he was walking right out of it. Barely. I stopped my finger from contacting the trigger and opened both eyes to see how much room I had before this shot was going to be a mistake. With reflex action, I dropped my finger and exhaled. The top wheel of my bow fell forward unimpended as the grip rotated in my hand. I heard the sound of a hit. It was wet. It was definite. It was dangerous. Dangerously close to reckless. I regretted the shot immediately. How far had the bull walked through the shot? I was hugging the left boundary of the shooting window as it was, and as he walked further to the left, getting a closer encounter with the cow that he was checking, my arrow was already on its way when his vitals disappeared between the screen of chopstick pine boughs. I was certain that my arrow had passed cleanly through the window without trimming and possibly deflecting off of any branches. But did it make it to its moving target in time? Or was I in the disastrous predicament of a bad shot, outside the vital zone and too far back on the bull's broadside body? So I gotta bring up something heavy. Killing elk sucks. I mean, it's a really conflicted feeling for me. When I watch the elk up close in my trail cam footage from the wallow, I can see bulls playing around in the mud and a sense, a look of an animal spirit, a living soul that I so much admire and respect. It's hard to dig deep into what I'm doing by taking the life of such an honest critter. I can see the look of joy in my own dogs, past and present, while looking into the eyes of other animals, bull elk especially for some reason. Can you? Or is this just me? I seriously don't know. But in certain moments in time, it's really hard to understand how I can justify taking a life away. Have you ever questioned that? I'm being totally honest here and asking because these are the thoughts that run through my head. Now, clearly, over time, I've thought about this a lot. And I'm still a hunter. And I know that I always will be. Back in the day, however, I was a cold-blooded killer with regards to hunting. As a kiddo, my dad and I would hunt small games such as sage rats. We called them that or ground squirrels, whistle pigs in other areas. We'd hunt jackrabbits, critters that we sought out in large inflated populations. Then, of course, with chucker, quail, and dove hunting, that involves knocking the life out of a lot of animals in the process as well. And without question, the hunting I became hooked on the hardest and that absolutely taught me the skills and discipline that I attribute to my hunting success today was predator calling. And to this day, I feel the best hunters are top predator hunters. It simply involves so many elements of hunting, razor sharp heightened awareness. To be a successful predator caller, you have to know that being still means absolutely solid as a rock. Being quiet means not a breath of sound, and you have to listen very hard. You have to have eyes of a raptor scanning the horizon and everything in between. You have to know exactly what the wind is doing and choose your setup locations accordingly. You have to know where the critters are most likely to come from and how they're going to try to work not towards you, but around you to get your wind. 
You must be skilled at entering an area quietly without being detected and knowing how to hide yourself while maintaining excellent field of view, range of motion, and ability to achieve shooting position with minimal noise and movement. You have to master the sounds of different calls and you have to know when and how to use them. You need both long range sniper accuracy and split second in your face point blank almost defensive shooting skills. You have to be very, very patient. And you have to always expect the unexpected. Predator hunting is intense. And this is only half of the you have to's that I can think of. When it comes to the apex killer, the last living soul on earth kind of thing, it's the paramount predator hunter that I'd put my money on. And along with the process of honing the predator hunting skill set comes a lot of killing. As a kid and young adult, it didn't really bother me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I vividly acknowledged and respected taking the life of an animal. I wasn't like some ultra redneck jackass dudes that I know who would actually lust and take pride in killing for the sake of killing. That was never me. But I came to study and understand the incredible challenges to getting really good at coyote calling. And as I learned to improve, I took fantastic satisfaction in that. Straight up, going out and calling coyotes was about my favorite thing to do. Right there on par with my daydreams of hooking into steelhead on the swing, two-foot trout taking a hopper pattern, carving single-track trails at warp speed on my mountain bike or dirt bike, and cleaning the whoop section and clearing big double jumps at the motocross track. The challenges that I spent my youth dreaming about. All this to say that I really love elk and deer. They are the two remaining critters that I still choose to hunt and do so with greater effort, energy, and conviction than ever before. I love these animals so much that I choose to hunt them. And with each one I'm fortunate enough to harvest, more than ever, I feel this compelling desire to share their stories here like I'm doing now. Not in an effort to glorify myself or some conquest of nature, but in fact to honor the animals as individuals that I'm grateful to take as food for our table and enrichment for my own journey in life and the adventures and substantial exertions involved in these backcountry hunts. I want my hunting stories to be a tribute to individual animals, how incredible they are and how much I treasure them as part of what brings vivid adventure, productive suffering, and fulfillment to my life each year. I'll be honest, I've lost bulls before to gut shots. One of them lived, a massive non-typical back in 2004, that I again nearly shot a week following a hit that was too far back. I saw him again the next year, which was such a soaring feeling of relief, knowing that he had indeed survived long term. Another, once again a non-typical come to think of it, occurred back in 97. The shot was long for the day. I'd guessed it at about 45 yards. I shot and I missed low. The bull whirled and ran, but quit calling and coaxing with cow calls. Man calls used to really work back in the day. Brought him right back to the exact same spot. This time, I knew precisely how to correct my aim. I did so perfectly. However, the bull now had me pinned and reacted as soon as I shot. He bolted and by the time my arrow got to him, The hit was back in his guts. I tracked the bull for as long as blood and evidence would allow over the course of that and the following day. His bleeding stopped, his tracks mixed with other elk, and I never found him. 
It was the first time I'd lost an animal, and it was devastating on many levels. I felt so divided about whether I'd made a mistake somehow. I mean, the first shot being a clean miss under the bull, and of course, when I was able to bring him back the second time, I had the ultimate opportunity for redemption. But a shot of close to 50 yards at the time was borderline too far. The equipment of the day was archaic compared to today's, and I beat myself up for it for years. Although with a grudge as well, as given that my second shot was true, it was more a matter of circumstance, the time the arrow took to hit the bull, jumping my string. The lessons of bad shots, bad decisions, yay or nay in the blur of the moment, those are things I don't think to this day I can claim any kind of victory or progress over. Choosing a shot is a split-second reaction as much as a conscious decision, something I personally don't think ever gets any easier or improved upon. It's like a knock on your elbow. Sometimes you barely notice it, and sometimes your funny bone lets you know otherwise. What has and continues to prove, however, is the technology of compound bows. The bows today are so incredibly forgiving to those of 20 years ago. Two areas I think are most significant are arrow speed and flat shooting. Flat meaning that with the old bow, the shooter has to know calculate or guess the yardage and appropriate pin to use. A miscalculation of this would have substantial difference on where the arrow lands. Bows today are so powerful that the effective difference in hit location relative to the assumed distance is fractions of what it used to be. A shooter can miscalculate the distance and suffer minor results compared to what I grew up shooting and hunting with in the 90s. Secondly, Arrow speed greatly reduces the animal's chance of jumping the string, or for that matter, dropping or walking out of the shot. Meaning that where the shooter sees their pin at the time of release, the arrow is hitting there almost instantly before you have time to finish hearing the reverb and recoil from the bow and the string firing. This was a primary calculus I was clinging to with this bull, hoping that my arrow made it to the bull fast enough to land in the kill zone. I upgraded my bow last year from a 2003 to a 2016 model and 100% attribute last season's bow to my new bow. Had I been holding my previous bow, there is no way in hell I would have hit that bull. Of course, there's no way in hell I would have taken that shot either. I stood still in my tracks, contemplating what had just happened. I didn't even knock another arrow as I'd watched the bull crash downhill and out of sight in a matter of a few leaps. The rest of the herd looked around in confusion. From what I could see, as cows, calves, and spikes came to life all around, none knew what had just happened. Even the cow the bull was sniffing stood there perplexed. All the elk looked at each other as if to ask, what the hell happened to him? The wind continued its cooperative relent, allowing mid-afternoon thermals to billow uphill and keep my scent away from the elk. Eventually, a pair of spikes decided something swirling in the air didn't quite jive, and 30 minutes was long enough to hang out after seeing the bull make tracks the way that he had. The rest of the herd mingled away casually as if headed off to another day at the elk office. I shifted my weight. I'd been standing perfectly still this entire time, unmoved since the shot. The elk had made their way out of the area, and I was left holding this octopus of emotions, analyzing the split-second gut reaction I'd just made. 
The weight of my pack was pulling hard at my shoulders, and blisters on my feet burned like hot coals in my socks. Just tilting my head all the way back and upward was a soothing stretch as I tried to prepare myself for what lie ahead, because every conceivable outcome was paired with major consequences. I mean, if my arrow was too late in hitting the bull, my shot was likely back in the guts, the liver if I was lucky and high enough. The first bull I ever killed I hit in this exact location, high and back in the liver. His tracking was involved, and it was late in the night before I found him. But I found him. Another three I've hit in various locations too far back. One I recovered after a very long tracking job. One I lost, the one back in 97, and one totally survived, that magnum non-typical in 04. Swallowing the worst-case outcome of bad shots is something many of us have had to do at some point. For those who have not, I envy you. But I've also personally witnessed some bizarre things happen from bad shots, like a hit in the groin taking a bull down almost instantly, so outcomes are completely unpredictable. Or, did my arrow get there in time and hit approximately where I was aiming, in which case, I could be celebrating in a matter of minutes. But I never heard anything fall down. And as calm as the day had now turned, you could hear a squirrel stumble 500 yards away. And if this bull went 500 yards, he'd be down in the cliffs, a steep jumble of shale and plate rock where I'd surely be able to hear a stumbling animal. A mid-distance bugle interrupted my dazing train of thought across and over the top of the next finger canyon. It was strangely faint, like quiet, but also sounded close. It wasn't a low talker, meaning a bull that was intentionally just kind of bull talking softly. This was more of a standard form bugle with a beginning, a middle, and an end, but like at low PSI. That's gotta be him, I uttered to myself, just like a few hours earlier, bumped from his location and once again bugling his arrival into new neighborhoods and with a hole in his body now lacking the gusto for a full pressure bugle. Now that the herd had left the area, I was able to move freely. I checked my watch and marked an hour from the shot. Once again, I reached for my rangefinder and I clicked the button on the spot where the bull was standing. 53 yards, steep downhill. Approaching first tracks, I stared hard into the backdrop of trees, looking for my arrow or any signs of blood it carried with it after passing through the bull. I squinted into the mess of branches for minutes. Nothing. Then back down on the ground, I took a closer look at the initial pre-bolt tracks. Now, at second glance, there is blood. And it's awful. Plainly mixed with the blood are bits of grass. As I feared, gut shot. In hindsight, as I'd remembered the shot, I recall thinking how money everything was, Frankly, it felt like the easiest shot in recent memory, and it all looked absolutely perfect even as my arrow was on its way. It looked like it could have been a terrific hit, but since the bull was beginning to walk and the shot was a bit of long distance, I just couldn't be sure. The sound of the hit was absolute, but lacked the crack of hitting ribs or the pop that often accompanies lung shots. It just sounded wet. And now, seeing confirmation of gut contents on the ground clobbered me like a bile-filled mattress falling from the sky. Thoughts swirled in my head. 
I'm either losing this bull because I made a mistake, which I could be tracking the bull for the next two days before actually losing him, or I could find him at some point in between, which in itself is a daunting realization when you're totally solo hunting from a spike camp and just for good measure, possibly as far away from the truck as any big game harvest you've been part of. All of those outcomes each had their own sour flavor of smelling salt effect on me. The tracks were really hard to sort out. The bull had bolted, but several other elk had walked over his tracks since the shot. And the ground was really rocky where they were all headed. Not easy tracking conditions. And I couldn't find any more drops of blood. I mean, this was just awful. I'd gut shot a bull, and now I couldn't even follow him 10 yards because I can't tell which track is his, or where any of them even go for that matter. Without blood, and honestly pretty damn good blood, I can't track this bull at all. If you've followed my previous hunts, you know about my tracking experiences of the past, and that I was standing there staring blankly at the ground, trying to comprehend the reality of the worst and hardest track I've ever had to own. I'm sure my head was dangling from my shoulders as I labored back uphill to the initial hit for another round of inspection. I looked some more for my arrow, but the shot angle and trajectory made an unbreakable case that my arrow had passed through the bowl and sailed well up and over the treetop line and then kamikazed into the rock field deep in the canyon below. I was really bummed about that even, as this number one arrow had taken my last two bulls, and I'd been able to find it and reuse it twice, with only a minor nick or two to the razor-sharp blades in the process. I wondered to myself, if someone were to find that arrow one day, pick it up and ponder where it had been and what it had gone through to lie where it was. If I could describe it to them, I'd say, well, at the moment I didn't know what to say to be honest. I sat in the shallow whoop in the trail where the cow I first spotted had been bedded and subsequently where I'd shot the bull, contemplating the facts of the scenario, gazing regretfully at the blood, scanning the ground around me, looking for ideas, for answers. With his first bolt, the bull ran behind cover of thick trees and I never saw him again. I know I could hear him running out, but all the other elk were kind of jumping at the same time and then it was quiet so I had nothing to confirm which direction the bull had gone. There were plenty of tracks continuing on the trail to suggest that he was one of them, but what if he had actually taken a hard downhill turn right away? I wouldn't have been able to see that either. My eyes began tracking down passable lines through the trees, and then there it was. Blood. A pretty decent amount, too. Bright red and not the grassy brown brine mixed with the first splash. A new trail. A new chance to get into a slamming, awesome blood trail and not resuming the task of hands and knees looking for pinpoint specks of blood that I'd been preparing myself for. A new start and a new hope. Standing now with a bright splash of red at my feet and much better defined tracks as well, I felt a giant weight lifted off of my shoulders. It was like hitting a reset button on the circumstance and about anything was better than the hand of cards I'd been holding just moments earlier. Over an hour had lapsed since my shot, yet I still moved with great care and caution to be quiet. Given that I was standing in relatively thick trees, 
and my general visibility was 50 yards at best, I opted to do something especially cautious. Before taking another step and setting forth on this new blood trail, which was loaded with new and better outcomes, I paused to take time to reflect on what I was doing and the discipline I needed to adhere to. You see, the number one way to lose a wounded elk is to embark in tracking too soon and bump the bull from its bed while it's still alive. I've always said that when you shoot an animal, depending on the hit location, it may have X number of seconds, minutes, or hours to live. If it spends that time undisturbed wherever it's chosen to bed down, the odds of recovering that animal are at their best. If it spends that time fleeing, jump from its bed, or feeling like it's being pursued, the odds of recovery fall off drastically. This is never more true than when dealing with a gut shot. If this bull was bedded and still alive, I had to do absolutely everything in my power not to jump him or tip him off. Undetection was by far the highest card that I was holding in this circumstance, that the bull, the entire herd for that matter, never knew I was ever there. The bull was shot, but for all he knew, a branch or something bizarre slapped him, and he was now for some reason feeling very ill. The ten or so elk in the herd never knew that an assassin had infiltrated their camp. So now that I'd identified what was indeed the track and heading of the bull, I needed to protect this, my only pillar of advantage, and find the bull without him knowing it, assuming that was he was still alive. First step in this process was to remain in place and just look and listen. I lifted my binoculars and began scanning details of the tangled mess of rock, trees, and vegetation below me. Inch by inch, I scoured the limits of my field of view, most of which was around 50 yards out. Sliding along the edges of silver-dead branches, blades of grass, and jagged edges of tree bark, I spotted it. Tan-colored hair. I could not believe my eyes. I could only make out a small patch, hidden in a mix of all sorts of natural elements, but I was positive I had once again spotted fur. With further peering, practically climbing through the tubes of my binoculars, I peeled a few sections of antler from the layers of tree branches. It was him. He was down and he was out. I had not taken a single step in this tracking process and I'd found my bull right under my nose this entire time. While my own guts twisted in dismay, regret, and self-doubt, the bull traveled only 50 or so yards from where I'd shot him, laid down, and died. I could not believe this outcome. I was entirely overcome with disbelief. My shot was practically perfect. Perhaps a rib or two back from where I'd place it if I could walk up and stick it in by hand, but in actuality, the resulting effectiveness of this hit, somewhat back of the lungs, was hard to debate. Apparently, the bull was quartering towards me a bit, and my arrow took the back of his lungs before exiting out his guts, creating the dismaying evidence that I'd been wrestling with. He was a nice 6x6, and just like last year, an active herd bull, the elk hunter's ultimate challenge. I had little time to bask in the amazing luck, however, as it was hot on this steep slope, and I had a lot of work ahead of me, field dressing this bull and getting his meat into the shade to cool. As I ranged it, the bull had gone 52 yards from where I'd shot him, almost the exact distance of the shot itself. 
Yet I'd been pulled through the ringer of self-doubt and regret in the process of finding him, something I'm painfully all too familiar with. Regardless, the victory was now mine, and I took just a few minutes to savor it, thank the bull in my own words, and snap a few photos. Field dressing an elk is no easy task, let alone doing it solo, and this fellow was on a heck of a steep hillside. I actually had to tie him off to a tree to keep him from sliding down the hill while I worked to break him down into manageable sections. I am a firm believer in the gutless method of field dressing and worked quickly through the nine-step process. Backstraps, tenderloins, and neck roasts would go out with me on the first trip back to spike camp. The four legs I bagged and propped against a nearby tree, took a few leaks around it, and covered them with my extra clothing layers for the night. This method has worked for me to deter bears, coyotes, wolves, or whatever from snacking on my harvest, all but one time at least. The next morning I left camp at sunrise and about an hour and a half later arrived to resume the field dressing process. On my way there, I saw the neatest looking fox I'd ever seen. Referred to as a silver fox, this fellow lacked any orange, but instead had distinct panels of black and gray with perfectly tipped white tail. There's a super quick look at him in the video I mentioned earlier, which I encourage you to watch. Back at the bull, I worked quickly deboning each leg and combining that and all the other miscellaneous meat into the extra large zippered pillowcases that I use as game bags. Finally, I removed the head and stripped it down to minimal mass and weight. I'd spent considerable time plotting my best route getting the loads back to the truck, and the distance was substantial enough, almost six miles, that I opted to break the trip into two segments. I had three loads to carry, one of which would have to include my camp as well. It took all of that day to basically get two of the loads to my halfway point, then return to spike camp for a final night. On my trip back to the kill site for the last load, I noticed both bear and cougar tracks on top of mine following me down the well-established game trail that negotiated the steepest cliff and shale slide sections of the journey. Times like that, I sure take comfort in having my late father's Glock on my belt. Hey there, buddy. Hi. Daddy's reading his elk story. An interesting measure I've come to recognize when considering hunting pressure, or just the general census of game, is bones. In some areas, I'll come upon more than one scattering of elk bones a day. Others, it's rare to find any ever. Whenever I spot bones, I investigate what's left behind. If there are any saw markings or indications of whether it's a natural or hunter harvest. In this area, there are lots of bones. And with nearly every set I find, there is a skull, sands, antlers, and a top. Makes sense in this country, where every critter has to be packed a long ways out. Now, I don't carry a saw with me. I used to. But once learning to be efficient and effective with a knife and the trickery of separating knee joints and the skull with knife alone, I quit carrying one. Plus, I really admire a totally cleaned and intact skull for display of my deer and elk. But in this situation, with loads so heavy and so far from the truck, I was really wishing I had a saw to simply cap the antlers from the rest of the head, a solid chunk of additional and non-essential weight to pack out. Lumbering through trees, branches, brush, and logs with a decent-sized rack 
added to all the weight of a heavy pack can be hell. It's a kind of suffering every hunter hopes for until it's realized. And then, my God, it sucks. My knees were weak, my footing was tenuous, and my eyes burned like hell as beads of sweat kept creeping into them. This was my final load, which included the bull's head, and I was teetering as I tried to duck under while also stepping over a large downfall that had to be crossed. On the steep side slope, the antler snagged on the tree both above and below my awkwardly bent body, like trying to fit between strands of a barbed wire fence and snagging your knee and backpack. As I worked to free myself, the familiar white outlines of a skeleton caught my eye. Once upright, I took a closer look, and there below me laid what I'd always hoped would accompany a scattering of bones. A huge rack of antler. Holy shit, I murmured out loud. I felt like the Newman character from Seinfeld, but in the movie Jurassic Park when he was slipping and falling in the wet jungle fleeing velociraptors as I tried to carefully get down to the dead bull. Struggling not to fall with my heavy pack, I reached the site and lifted the magnum rack from the rubble. It was a huge bull, so wide with exceptionally long main beams, he had died in the last year and the bottoms of the antler were still dark brown while the top surfaces were bleached white. Other than that, he was undamaged, no broken or chewed off tines, a solid mid-300s bull. But how the hell am I going to carry this? In my entire life, all the miles I've covered in the boonies, I've never found anything like this. And here I am, in the exceptionally rare scenario where my payload is not only maxed out, but also overloaded with antler as it is. I propped the base of the skull over my neck and tried to settle it among the tangle of antler already there, strapped to the top of my pack. It was all I had to make it up back to the trail, and as luck would have it, I had another multi-level tree to get through. I knew this situation was so remarkable, for me at least, that I propped up my camera to capture what the scene looked like as I tried to figure out how to get over the obstacle. Dried out shells of maggots fell from the brain cavity and stuck to my sweat-soaked shirt collar, neck, and worked their way down my back. This situation was not sustainable. It quickly became clear that I was struggling to get myself off the mountain alive with just my bull's head and load of meat. I had miles and miles of thick trees, downfall, and trailless creek bottom to cover as it was. There was no way I could add this massive rack to my load. I picked out a thick patch of brushy evergreens and stashed the skull and rack, after, of course, taking a few photos. Maybe next year I'll be back in here again and I'll be able to take the monarch bull out with me. I sure hope so. I shot my bull on Tuesday and it was now daybreak on Thursday morning. My body hurt all over as I headed out for what would be the final four of 12 stages of packing this bull out. A few miles in, I slowed to ease carefully over a rise in the folded terrain of the creek bottom. It felt great to rest and walk slowly like this, especially since my pack contained only bare essentials for these meatpacking haul trips. I was paused here for a specific reason, however, and knew exactly what I was watching for. Keeping my eyes busy ahead and not really on the trail below me, 
I snagged my toe on a series of loose rocks and knocked one free, which proceeded to roll downhill. As it did, an unmistakable sound hit my ears, rhythmic thumping in the creek bottom below. Deer. The pounding was heavy enough that I knew this had to be my buck, the one whose tracks I'd seen many times in this very spot and I'd hoped to one day lay eyes on. As the sound punctuated the slurping creek and thick willows, I ripped my camera from its pouch and prepared to see the buck emerge from the thick cover of the creek bottom and head up the sagebrush slope to flee. He was almost exactly what I'd envisioned these past two years, a deep forked and heavy buck in his prime. Extra kicker points protruded from each side of his thick typical frame. He was a beautiful buck with a tiny little cousin in tow. Figured, of course, that I didn't even have my bow in hand. But with everything else I was dealing with the bull alone, I was content just to finally see this buck like this, a survivor of the severe winter and mule deer die-off of 2016. And I was so happy to be shooting video of the buck. Yes, yet another reason you should watch the video I've mentioned. And I admired his silhouette as he made his way up and over the ridge, gracefully disappearing into the deep blue of early morning, over the rim rock, and mahogany-framed horizon. Yet another skyline that will live forever in my fondest of memories. Hey, in closing here, I want to thank each of you for listening and for joining me on this adventure. As I've described in the past, I really write and now record these stories for myself, close friends, and family as much as anything. It's super rewarding for me in a similar way that photography and filmmaking extends experiences in ways that I get to take these moments home with me, not only to share with others, but actually to relive myself over and over. That said, I'm not sure to what extent I'll continue publishing these rambling essays, as it does take a lot of time to polish these up, and frankly, it's disappointing how few people actually listen. So we'll see how things go. I still have stories from last year's rifle hunt, a really cool Baja rooster fishing adventure, and in fact a mule deer hunt that I just ended a few days ago that'll be fun to record and publish here. My point is that if you enjoy these and would like me to continue, I'd love to hear from you. And I need your help in sharing these to other people you think would enjoy listening. Basically, we need to crank up the number of plays. I'd love to keep doing them, but I need to know if there is indeed a larger audience out there. Maybe there is, maybe there is not. I'm cool with it either way and will continue doing what I'm doing and telling my stories in person to those who ask. They're just not going to be as detailed and colorful as these, which maybe that's a good thing. Anyways, I hope you've enjoyed the 2018 Rut Report. Thanks for listening and coming along. <laughs>